For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jackie, and I'm married to Kieran, who's going to talk in a minute. Um, just to give you, if if you don't already know this, Kieran and I actually got married when we were 19. So I've had many people come up to me in the church and say, "What would you know about dating?" <laughs> Which is probably true at this point in time. I wouldn't know a lot about dating right this second. Um, but anyway, I'll just tell you a little bit about us, and then we'll get on to it. Um, I had a few boyfriends in high school and I I became a Christian when I was quite young um, in primary school. And so, yeah, when I started to have boyfriends, I just dated boys from school, none of whom were Christians at the time. I can still vividly remember a moment in my youth group where my leader said to me, well, you can only marry a Christian. And I was actually devastated at the thought that all of a sudden, all of the pool of boys in the whole world had kind of shrunk down to such a small amount. I didn't know how I would ever actually find someone, you know, I just thought it cut out so many possibilities. Um, And so when I first met Kieran, he wasn't a Christian. We met at a party and... um, We actually did start dating after that, in typical Jackie style, Um, and it didn't actually work out, very quickly didn't work out. Um, He dumped me for my friend, and um, (laughs) I'm just letting you all know, like, this is the history. Um, Yeah, so he, as I said, he wasn't a Christian at the time, and I was pretty irritated, but what actually transpired out of that is we, we became friends. I, like, I'd met him for the first time at this party. He was a friend of a friend. Um, but, yeah, so over the next year, we actually became really good friends. He didn't last long with my mate either. But, um, yeah, and we spent a lot of time talking and getting to know each other. And um, I think that was a really awesome time, actually. And during that year, he became a Christian. Um, and so, yeah, after he became a Christian, we started dating again. And the second time, he was the first Christian I'd ever dated, and it actually worked out far better second time around, as you can see. Um, yeah, we ended up getting married. And I guess, yeah, I just wanted to say, first of all, that as someone with not a whole large amount of experience with dating, if I learned anything from my experience, it was that firstly that friendship was key to the success um, after being friends for a solid year, and also um, his faith. Anyway, that's just a bit of an intro. Um, Now, I wanted to start with a few basics that you guys would quite possibly already know. Um, If you're like me, who pretty much looked up every single verse that the Bible possibly could have, which mentioned the word sex or anything at all, just to try and get yourself on the right track, um, yeah, you're probably familiar with these these words that I'm going to tell you now, but this isn't the main part. I'm just going to talk about a few verses and then I'm going to um, tell you about what I want to say. So the first first basic that you would probably already know if you were anything like me and looked up all this stuff, if you're going to date, then you're probably looking forward towards marriage. So start right and date a Christian. Um, This is one of the verses that you can think of, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
<clears throat> That's probably one that you've heard before. I had that quoted at me by my youth group leader and I was very cross about it. <clears throat> another thing that, um, another verse that you've probably heard of is Ephesians 5 verse 3. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And on the same line, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, those ones are pretty clear. Flee. I love that word. Um, And what I also appreciate about the Bible, I was kind of looking for that verse that said, do not date a non-Christian boy for me. Do not do this, that, A, B, C, D, F, G, H, etc. But um, I think these two verses are really, really great to try and understand because God didn't just write in the Bible, do not have sex before you're married. He's actually asking us, well, calling us to something more than that. He sets the bar higher and that holiness is a call to more than just trying not to have sex before you're married. It's the same like when he talks about generosity, you know, how, how generous should you be? More. Um, and one other verse. Oh, this one's a great one. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now that's pretty like in your face, especially if you're talking about like purity. What are you cutting off? I don't know. But it's, it's, it, the passage is specifically speaking about adultery. So it's not saying, you know, if you, I don't know, if you really want to lie, cut your tongue out. Like it's actually specifically talking about adultery in that passage. And it's, I don't know, that sets the bar pretty high as well. And one other verse, if you've ever looked into these sorts of things, um, this is about singleness. Because we're talking about dating and singleness. and That is that singleness is a gift. In 1 Corinthians, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. So in this passage, it's not saying that you necessarily are going to remain single. It's not saying this is definitely your gift that you will have for your whole life. That's, you know, that's your gift to stay single. It, Maybe for some people it is, but that's not specifically what it's saying there. Um, it's, it's really telling people that if you are single, whether it's for a time or, or all the time, um, it's a gift because you can put your primary focus on serving God and not pleasing your immediate family who are always vying for your attention. <clears throat> so those are just a few verses that I wanted you Yeah, I wanted to point out, because I'm not going to be talking specifically about those things. Um, As I said, I'm sure that a lot of you have already looked into it, but we can talk more, if you have more questions, we can talk more about it with the the Q&A. Instead, um, I'm going to talk to you about the parable of the great banquet. Um, And I guess... Yeah, I I wanted to talk about that because I found that it was helpful to reframe relationships and also our spiritual walk in general. And I think that one thing when you're going into relationships, I I think that your spiritual walk is, um, yeah, of primary importance. Um, So this is, if you have your Bibles there and you want to read along, Luke chapter 14, 14, verses 15 to 24. 
When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So I don't know if you guys have heard this story, this parable before, um, and maybe you've heard it preached on, and apologies because I won't speak on it as well as if someone else, you've heard someone else speak on it. But back in the time, if someone uh, was making a feast, they would have to then go and kind of gather all of their animals and kill the animals so then they could, you know, get them prepared, dig up the vegetables, all of that sort of stuff. So they would send out invitations well in advance so they'd know exactly what they would have to kind of do to prepare. They don't just pop down to Coles ten minutes before to get a barbecue chicken. Um, So... With the invitations, people would have already known well in advance and indicated that they wanted to come because the food had to be prepared. So then when it was all done, that's when kind of that second round, when the servant comes out and says, all right, it's ready, come on in now. So these people, the three people that the servant went out to, the food was finally ready and they had last-minute excuses. So one needed to go see the field he bought... One needed to try out his five yoke of oxen and one just got married. And when I first read this, I always thought the master was pretty harsh. Like, I thought they were pretty valid reasons to not come to have dinner. Um, but he, when he heard the excuses, he became angry and ordered his servant to bring back anyone else who he could find who was actually willing to come. So the people who were invited would lose their seats to all of those who would be considered to be outcast, <clears throat> the poor and the crippled. He didn't want a single seat to be wasted at the banquet. And then to conclude, probably the most harsh, as he said that no one who who was invited will ever taste it. Why? The whole parable is about priorities. The first man who wanted to go and have a look at his field surely would have looked at it before he handed over all the cash to buy it, right? He could have looked at it tomorrow, the day after. Why did he have to go and look at it? at that time of the feast the same way the second man he was probably pretty wealthy which was indicated by his five yoke of oxen so in the same way he would have kind of checked them out before he'd purchased them he would have known what the oxen were capable of and what his wealth had brought him Um, but rather yeah that was his excuse for not wanting to go to the banquet 
And the last person said he just got married. Now, if there was anyone that would have been pre-prepared for an event, it would have been that person getting married. They would have known well in advance when they were getting married because they would have had to make their own preparations. And they wanted, they had agreed, they'd RSVP'd to this man's feast. So really, that's, that's kind of a poor last-minute excuse as well. <clears throat> a last-minute um, change of mind showed his priorities and none of those people are keeping their word to the host. So what's this whole thing about? Is it wrong to buy a property? Is it wrong to make a business venture, buy animals? Is it wrong to get married? Why is the master so angry? He sent out the invites. They were accepted. And at the last minute, after all of that preparation work had been done, these people refused to come because they're more concerned about something else. So in case you haven't worked it out, in this parable, the master is God and the people he invited represent his people, the Israelites. So often in the parables, there are parallels drawn between the rich and elite and the Pharisees because the Pharisees know the law, but often lack wisdom in its application. So this is a great host and a lavish feast for many people, but those who are invited wouldn't even prioritize to be there. So instead, the outcasts were the ones who were brought in to fill the seats at the banquet, the unworthy. So that's, that's you, that's me. We're the ones that get invited to this great feast when that feast is representing the blessings of God's kingdom. <clears throat> so the parable reinforces the grace and the mercy of God. The outcasts, that's us, the sinners, we're all welcome. All we need to do is accept the invitation and go to the feast. God wishes to lavish his blessings upon us and it's free, not something we've earned, not something we deserve. So whilst we may make poor decisions in our dating lives, we know that this grace is still available to us if we only ask for forgiveness. The warning of the parable, however, lies in those who were first invited but did not taste the feast. Why not? Their priorities. They had the wrong priorities. If we make a habit of making the wrong choices, we may find that that becomes the competing priority that lures us away from our seat at the table. So this is where I specifically want you to consider your thoughts on relationships, dating and singleness. Is that the priority in your life? Are you so distracted about finding the perfect mate that you've been distracted from the great feast? blessings of the kingdom of God are you spending so much time dwelling on every detail of the next time you see your boyfriend or your girlfriend that you ran out of time to read your bible today are you so keen to go on holidays with your partner that you don't care about what might eventuate while you're sleeping in a room together or even in singleness are you so wrapped up in visiting the gym for three hours each day or watching every movie on Netflix that you don't have time left over to serve in a ministry? What are your priorities? And are your priorities worth missing out on the feast and the blessings of the kingdom of heaven? I think this parable is so relevant to the topic of dating, relationships and singleness because today that seems to be considered the defining factor of who we are. Everyone wants to know who's with who, who broke up, who did what behind closed doors and who still hasn't found someone who will marry them yet. 
But you know what? God is concerned only with our priorities, that our priority is our relationship with him and that when he extends that invitation to us to share in the feast of the kingdom of God, that we are ready to go and eat, that he is our priority above all else and that means even a priority above a relationship. It's the classic youth group answer that we've heard over and over again for good reason. Read the Bible, pray, spend time developing your faith and prioritise your relationship with God above all else. What happens next with singleness and relationships is not quite as terrifying or as all-consuming if you get the first part right. So I just want to ask you, um, as I finish up here, how are you going with dating and singleness? What are your priorities? I'm just going to put some of those verses back up. Is your priority having someone, anyone, to be in a relationship with because there's no one at church that you want to date? Or is your priority finding a Christian partner who will encourage you in your walk with God? Is your priority blurring the lines of sexual morality with your relationship? Or is it your priority to flee in the opposite direction of temptation? Is your priority to continue on in bad habits that have become embedded within your relationships? Or is your priority to take whatever measure is required to stop sitting? And is your priority being selfish with your time, your money and your energy? Or is your priority following God's call on your life and utilising the gifts he's given you to their full extent? Competing priorities are hard in every aspect of life, especially in dating and singleness. And so to finish off, I just want to read you a quote from one of the commentaries I read. And, um, yeah, I hope this helps with your reflection because I found it was, um, yeah, quite a, yeah, quite profound for me. I don't know. Is that in one? You're just all over it. Thanks, James. It's crucial to understand here that the party goes on despite the reneging of the original invitees. The party's not postponed. Others are invited to take their place. Opportunity has been lost by some. Grace has been extended to others, but the meal is still served. The question is on which side of the divide Jesus' listeners and Luke's readers fall. God's grace continues, but we can miss blessing if we do not respond to Jesus. Even those who seem to be first in line will miss the party if they refuse to come to the celebration. To use Jesus' words elsewhere, the first have become last and the last have become first. So that's it for me. I just want to pray quickly um, yeah, before Kieran comes up, but yeah, hopefully there's a few things for you to think, think about there. Lord, I just thank you for what you can teach us through your word, Lord. And I thank you for the encouragement that it is in meeting together and learning about your word as a group. And Lord, I thank you for the people who are here in this room, that they are keen to know more, Lord, and um, yeah, keen to prioritise their relationship with you. I just ask that you'll enable all of us um, yeah, to be able to put you first every day. Amen.